Welcome to the Let's Talk About It podcast with your host, Denise. Denise can be found on IamDenise.com and all social media platforms. On Let's Talk About It, we dive into the path along the journey while celebrating the human spirit, resilience, and ability to grow beyond limitations. Are you ready? Okay, then let's talk about it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About It. As usual, I'm always happy to talk about life, uh, the journey, people's experience, and share that with our listening and viewing audience. My guest today, if you can see him, he looks like Superman, but he's not. <laughs> he is, you know, you, you very well might be Superman because this book that you wrote is, oh my gosh, it's like, it's it's, it's it's like Superman-like <laughs> introspection and reflection. So Nate Rifkin is the author of The Standing Meditation. And as you can see, I have all these markers and separators and highlighted areas. And we are going to talk about just, we're going to talk about this book. We're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about life and your experiences and some of the insights that you shared and, and some that you didn't that we may just end up kind of going on that street to talk about. So welcome to Let's Talk About It. Thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, thank you, Denise. I'm honored to be here. Hope I can share something that'll, you know, helps uh, change someone's life. I, I definitely think you will. So let's start with who is Nate, right? That's always a good point of view. Who are you? Yeah. Who am I? And it's funny you say that because that's a meditation I, I practiced back in the day. It's called the Who Are You Meditation, but we can get into that. <laughs> um, so I'm, let's see, I am a mid-30s guy who went trudged through a personal hell and, and wrote about it and wrote it in a way so other people could avoid it. Um, and I, uh, I grew up on the East Coast, grew up in a, a family that was pretty devoid of love and, and really with parents that were not equipped to raise a child. Um, so I, I started as a pretty angry kid. And as I got older, I became more depressed. And um, the short version of it is I thought I could kind of change myself and start a whole new life, especially when I got the heck out of my, uh, my uh, childhood home. My parents divorced when I was seven. Um, and when I, I, I did go to college briefly, and when I did, like within a day or two of showing up on campus, I realized how wrong I was about being able to just easily change myself. Because even if I moved out, um, I was still carrying the same me wherever I went, the same blockages, the same skewed perceptions, the same wounding that I, that I experienced as a child that turned me to become so angry and then so depressed. Um, so I dropped out because one, I didn't really think I needed a college degree. I wanted to be like a business owner or self-employed somehow. And two, I was so miserable that there's no way I was going to be able to graduate. My grades were just kind of careening off of a, a cliff. So, um, I started an online business and this is in, what was it? 2006. And, um, 
I was using my personal credit for it. So I started maxing out credit cards. I had some hit or miss success because I, I had a knack for writing. I had a knack for advertising and marketing. Um, but the misses started to add up and I started to go more and more into debt. And I, I had no like financial maturity at all. I basically had very little maturity period. And I still really like dysfunctional, like just really lonely person. Um, so when a bill would come in the mail, like I, w- I was so shut down that um, I'd drop it on the floor and, and, and another l- letter I'd kind of drop on top of it. And it was like literally out of sight, out of mind. Um, and during the worst, I-, I got really depressed. During the worst of the depression, I started uh, drinking every morning, like a couple, couple shots of vodka filled up like a couple inches of the glass. And then I topped it off with an energy drink. And that was like my breakfast. So that's kind of where I was. Um, and then my turning point was when I lucked into kind of diving into my own spiritual path. Cause I tried all the self-help stuff. I, I was, I was setting goals. I, I really was working hard. I was visualizing. Um, but I grew more and more jaded and frustrated because none of that was working the way I'd learned. And I, I really thought it would, but fortunately I started diving into more as like esoteric spiritual stuff. And that was at, that started to turn my life around starting from the inside out. Um, and today I'm now healthily obsessed with this cool spiritual stuff and wrote a book about, it, and that's why I'm here talking to you. Oh my goodness. There's so much to unpack in that. And I love that you are so open. You're just as, as open in your book. Like the first chapter, okay. right? I'm just going to share this with our audience. I hated myself. I hated that I was alone. I hated how I became a loser drenched in so much debt that I was terrified I'd end up homeless. My thoughts were like a faithless darkness drilling pain into my mind. How could I escape this? Would I need to die? I think when when I opened the book and I, I read that, I was like, Oh, oh, like you just start out with the conversation from the depths of self-loathing, just depression, just really not knowing what to do next and where to go next and really thinking is the only way to escape this death, right? And as I go more into the book, I'm thinking, okay, so this is a man that wrote this and this man grew up with something that led him to this point, right? Not blaming everything that happens on our childhood, obviously our our parents, but there are things that contribute significantly to our development, to our maturity, as you kind of mentioned. And when you wrote that, you were sharing the lens in which you were looking through with the reader to say, hey, have you ever felt like this? Have you ever been in that position? When did you start to see, because when we're in it and it's happening Mm -hmm. to us, quite often we can't see it. So when did you start to look in? There's this scientist, um, David, uh, Boom, you know, where he, he worked a lot with Krishnamurti and they talk about like, you know, observer, observee, like, right, subject, object. And it's kind of like your, 
it's happening to you and you're observing it, but you're kind of like one with that whole experience. So when did that happen for you? When did you start to observe what is happening to you and the impact that it is happening, that it is having on you? Um, I think it came in, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think it came in degrees and it probably ramped up um, when I was a senior in high school. So I don't know if that's early or late compared to people, but, um, and I, I think it, and this is just off the top of my head, because I've never, I've never really considered that before, but I think it started happening around the time when I got into lifting weights, because back, I, I, I do a little bit today, but back in high school around then I was doing a lot of weightlifting. Now, the reason that started to, uh, create a reflection, uh, a, a capability of reflection within me is because it was my first experience of conscious change. Now it might've just been on how strong I was, but it was my first hint that I can, it, I can consciously alter myself, um, at a fundamental level. And previous to that, I was just a guy bopping along going through school, which didn't really teach much reflection. So that was like, the genesis of it. And then when I started going to college and all that, um, I started thinking more about the path I was following and how, um, how the thoughts I, I was thinking were affecting me and what I could do about it. So it, it sort of amplified with my journey into self-help, not that it ended up healthy until a while later, but, but well in advance of being able to really change myself in a healthy way, I could start to see how, I was in this kind of hole and how it might've been part of like a larger, a larger journey. And, and, and also probably, I mean, I didn't really think about it too much, but also a, a universal one. I think that answers what you're saying or did yeah, I hear? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <Woo>. Okay. <laughs> you know, as, as you're going through that, I, I feel like you had a few startovers and a lot of times when people are going through you know, the journey of becoming more self-aware or even more spiritual or more connected, a lot of times it's marketed as a one, two, three, you know, like you have an epiphany, you have an awakening, and then your life after that is just kind of like one thing kind of like working in conjunction with the other and all things work together for the good, but there are a lot of startovers. And, you know, one of the things yeah. I love that you say about that is a million fresh starts won't change a damn thing if I was too shut down to connect with others. And so yeah. talk to me a little bit about recognizing that as a coping mechanism and as a you know way to protect yourself, your armor was to be emotionally unavailable and disconnected from others. Sure. Um, and it was it was a fascinating coping mechanism um, because it was self-perpetuating. It was, it was almost like it was a self-aware being or something like that. But I mean, essentially I grew when I say I grew up in a loveless household, there, there are many different kinds of, of, of childhood experiences we can have that can, that can wound us. We could have codependent parents that treat us like we're adults and almost develop a friendship with us, which, which can be terrible for us. We can have um, violent parents um, and we can have parents that are very distant and emotionally shut off. And as children, 
we can develop a lot of coping mechanisms to be able to withstand that pain. Um, and I, I see coping mechanisms sort of like scar tissue. It's a, it's a defense mechanism that can um, help you survive, but it's never gonna have the same sort of delicacy and sensitivity and, and, and function as healthy skin. So we, as, as children, we could develop a lot of rough calluses around our emotions and around our, our functioning as human beings to deal with, with the pain we withstand. So when, when I had a very, very, very distant father and had a very hostile mother, I could have gone many different ways. And so I could have gone in the direction where I'd become very open hearted and very like trying to fix everything and become the adult. This happens to a lot of like the older siblings. Um, and they're sort of like the stressed out personality that always has to like care for somebody. Um, and I could have gone a lot of the other ways, but the way I went was to become very shut off heart center wise. Um, and be very walled up emotionally and not feel a whole lot. The upside of that is that I could withstand a lot of hostility without breaking apart, um, without, without becoming very emotionally distraught. The downside of that is that I became this like really shut down robotic type, uh, not empathic at all. And that's repulsive to other people, most other people. Um, there, there might be a small subsection of people that are kind of like drawn to that and form like it's some their weird... family dynamics that they yeah. like mimicking that dysfunction within you. Like, oh right? yeah, of course. So it gets, if you get intertwined, it's like perfect cycle <laughs> of like, <laughs> it's like, this is what you need to work on. Not what you need to be. Doing. So anyway, um, so, but, and, and the thing about developing that coping mechanism is that it blinded me to the fact that it was a coping mechanism and that it was destructive in the long term and also kind of kept kept me from being able to resolve it. So as a closed off person that couldn't form really healthy relationships, it, it was a downward spiral. I became more isolated, which made, made me more walled off because the world at large confirmed exactly what all my deep-seated suspicions were, that people are either jerks or they don't give a crap about me, and that either way I'm a, I'm a loser and that if, if I'm going to make any, anything of myself, it, it would all come down to hard work or luck um, or, you know, or it would show up as a belief that, you know, I, I don't deserve this or that it, this will never work out for me. This will never happen to me. So, and, and I think, I think just about everyone who has like a coping mechanism goes through this where it's just like, you're, you will always find the evidence you need to confirm your, your original response to wounding as a child, um, so which, it, which makes it just so hard to, to break out of that. I mean, so I, I went until my early 20s, just going deeper down that path. My guest today is Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. We are in part one of a two-part series, and we are diving deep into conversations about the journey from childhood, the journey as we navigate adulting, <laughs> mm -hmm. and the spiritual side that often um, holds all the answers on the other side of going through all of that. Don't go away, we'll be right back. My name is Denise and you're listening to Let's Talk About It.
Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. My guest today is Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. We are in part one of a two-part uh, series that will be uh, talking to Nate about this book he wrote, his life experience, and how he found this wonderful spiritual method to help him deal with life on a day-to-day -day basis throughout his journey. Earlier before the break, we were talking about the coping mechanisms that you had to form as a result of the dynamic of your parents. And I think when I'm reading this, I was like, I wonder if you understood that as it was occurring to you or if your understanding comes from reflection. Because, and, and one of the reasons I, I thought about that was when your parents told you and your brother about the divorce. It kind of sat you down. They were going to like make a thing of it. And you were like, okay, as if there was a part of you that was like, it's just a natural way of things to go. Like this was inevitable. And that to me indicates that there was a level of awareness that you had, even at that age, about what you wanted, what you needed, what was lacking, a kind of acceptance about the way things were. And in the book, you say, my mom was too dissociated to recognize how angry and hostile she was. Instead of treating my father with respect, she made sniping comments about how poor a job he did raising my brother and me. I'm sorry, how did that affect the way you interpret women and what you thought of? And what you assumed the possibility of their nurturing tendencies or lack thereof in your mind and in reality, when this is kind of like the mole and the model that you've kind of had your kind of representation of what a woman is and what a woman does. How did that uh, affect you? Uh, poorly. <laughs> um, so, but one thing I want to mention, based on what you said, I, I really love your questions and, and, and your insights into what I wrote. Um, I got to be honest, though, I was, what I wrote in the book is based a lot on looking back as an adult. So I was pretty consciously, I was pretty unaware. Um, and not only did it come from reflection as an adult, it actually came a lot as, as, as learning as an adult. So not just thinking about it, but also getting information, which, which really helped me go back and be like, oh, so that's what this, that's what was going on. Oh, that's what was going on. Um, so the way, but the way, you know, my mother sort of um, contributed to my, my filters and my perception, my biases, my assumptions and all that was that um, on a deep level, we're not talking like the conscious chatter on a deep level. Um, I was uh, under the impression that like all relationships, like uh, romantic relationships are cold, distant, hate filled um, and, and are foreign. They're alien. Um, and, and not only that, but painful enough that it's a good idea to avoid them at all costs. Now that's a deep level. That's what I figured out later. My conscious chatter was, oh yeah, my mom, my mom's very um, messed up, but that doesn't affect me at all. I'll be, I'll be different. 
Um, so I, I, I really thought that just because I know that I come from kind of a, a messed up beginning, even if I don't really have much insight into why and how and how to get out of it, I just figured as well, as long as I know I come from a, a weird family, um, I'll be fine because I could, I could think to myself that I, I'm a, I could be a healthy person and that I'll, I'll meet someone wonderful and that we could form a relationship. So what, but what, and the reality of that was, is that there's always some form of self-sabotage. Like if I did run into a, a, a great woman, like, um, like in, if, if we were in class together in high school and struck up a conversation or in college or something like that, something would always happen where I would um, have an excuse to, to end the interaction. Like I would take something she said the wrong way and perceive it as a slight or I would think, no, there's no way she'd be interested in me. Why even bother? Um, and it was, it was, it was, it was interesting because there's always some sort of like belief behind some of these interactions where it's just like, oh, uh, they'll, they'll just end up like treating you like crap anyway. Continuing the conversation of your mother, even when your mother wasn't around. So the women were kind of being put in that role of continuation based on her temperament or her constructs or just how she communicated with you and how you saw that um, yeah. your mom and dad? Yeah, or it, it could even be something that I made up even if her temperament wasn't like that. Or actually, especially if her temperament wasn't like my mother, something in me would be like, well, Wait it's only a matter of time. You Wait know? for it. Right. Yeah, wait, yeah, wait for it. It is still an extension of that because even if the characteristics doesn't show up, it's like there's a part of you who is like risk mitigating, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And and prepping and prepping and prepping for it. Sorry, I swallowed my fear and grief deep enough that I didn't know it was festering in hidden regions of my brain. And as I'd later learn parts of my body. Yeah. When you're pushing that anger down, how is that affecting you in the body? Um, physical tension, a lot of physical tension in my muscles. Um, it did not really result in too many major health problems because a lot of people, that's where it shows up. Yeah. Um, I can't prove it, but I, I, when I was in junior high school, I had like the worst acne out of everyone in my grade. I suspect a lot of self-loathing, a self-loathing was manifesting itself physically. Um, so I, if you're asking about how that affect my body, I think that was one of the effects. Um, so I, I think it, it would manifest in my physical appearance to make me kind of look as unattractive on the outside as I felt on the inside. And it resulted in a lot of physical tension. Cause like I said earlier, it's like, I would, I, I used to lift weights in the, in the gym a lot. I would get more and more like physically tense. It was funny. I was trying to like get broader shoulders by working out, but by working out combined with a lot of the, the emotions I was stuffing down, my shoulders would actually get more narrow and tight. Yeah. So, wow. uh, yeah, so those, those are the two ways that it, it manifests over the years. I don't want to say one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things, because I'm saying this quite often, because you have like these amazing one, two, three liners that's so capsulating off these larger concepts. 
And one of them that you have is where you say, you become depressed when your anger turns inward. And I want to talk about that when we come back from the break, because I, I've just never thought about depression that way. But the more I thought about it, the more sense it made. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Let's Talk About It. My name is Denise. We are talking to Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. And I know you guys want to know about the meditation stuff. You're going to have to come back and listen to part two, because part one, we're just talking to Nate about Nate and his journey and you know what he went through before we get to the good stuff. So make sure that you uh, come back for part two. But we're going to come back after these messages and continue talking Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. I'm Denise, and we're talking to Nate, author of The Standing Meditation, Nate Rifkin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and just really being so open and vulnerable. I love that. It's my favorite conversation to have with people who are standing in their authenticity and sharing that with others. Oh, this is, uh, this is really fulfilling for me to do, so I, I'm uh, honored to do it. All right. So before the break, we were talking about this line that you have in here that says that you believe you become depressed when you when your anger turns inward. Like expound on that a little bit for me. Sure. And I mean, this is not something that I um, thought of on my own. This comes from a lot of the when I got deeper into the spiritual mystical studies. I started learning about these traditions and how they mapped out the psychology of people. Uh, and that was, that was one of their teachings, the kind of the, the overarching like um, pattern that people fall into is that, or they go through is that, you know, when we, uh, when we're born into this life, we are hit with trauma. I mean, every, everyone is hit with some kind of trauma. Um, and as a result, we'll react in certain ways. There, there's going to be a shock. Um, it because this could be from a physical injury, it could be get from getting yelled at, it could be from neglect, but there's going to be some kind of shock that goes with it. Um, and after the shock comes the initial feelings involved and, and feelings to be hurt and which can lead to a, a sadness or it can lead to an anger. And, you know, the sadness can come from the fact that it's like, oh, why, you know, why is this, why is this happening? This is horrible. The anger can be part of the defense. Um, and what usually happens is that these emotions are not properly processed because, um, well, we just, we just don't know how, uh, or even, it, and even within the not knowing how we could be still stuck in the same situation that's causing the same trauma. Because if we have a parent that neglects us and they keep neglecting us, we're going to be hit with that trauma repeatedly. So what happens is these feelings can uh, progress. <laughs> and not in a good way. So the anger can keep going and um, become form a belief system, or the sadness can progress to become grief, which forms a belief system. Um, and, and it can progress to form a coping mechanism. Like the anger can become chronic anger. It can lead to shutting down of our emotions as, as part of that coping mechanism to withstand the pain. Or the sadness and the grief can turn into a a coping mechanism of um, codependency so that we can try and like solve the situation to cause her sadness wherever we see it. Um, now, part of this 
involves um, being able to function in society. And if you're constantly angry and you've got nothing and, and you're constantly trying to defend yourself against this like imagined injustice that keeps on going and going in your head, uh, eventually it can turn inward. Um, cause like with me, when I was so isolated, um, I, I, I didn't con like some people might consciously choose to direct their anger at some, something outside of themselves, like some outside institution. Um, we see this a lot in political debates. Um, and, but I'll, also what we can do is we turn inward and that anger starts hitting ourselves. Um, you know, why, why, why can't I do this? I suck at this. I'm terrible. This, this isn't working. And eventually I hate myself. I am a loser. And then it just becomes the, the signal goes deeper and deeper and deeper until boom, you're depressed. Um, and, and this, and it, this, 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 this mechanism takes so much of our energy that what happens with a lot of people when they're depressed, they become very lethargic and starts hitting them physically. And they can be even be uh, bedridden. Um, so, so that's sort of like the, 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 I want to say it's almost like the flow chart I learned <laughs> of like pathology that people could go through. And I, and, and I learned this sort of from uh, the, the spiritual traditions I started studying. You know, quite often I say to people that adulting is hard. It is very hard. And a lot of times we really are utilizing fight or flight syndrome and responses, avoidance mechanisms, coping mechanisms, and we continue to use them because that's what we've used and that's what we hold on to and that's what we know that at the end of the day, if we utilize this response system, at least it will provide us with some level of safety. And as you mentioned so eloquently earlier about the metaphor with you know, scar tissue and, and healthy tissue, and even though it's there doing something, it's not necessarily the real thing. And there are a lot of people, particularly like 30s, 40s, even in their 50s, that doesn't connect the dots to see how it goes back. You know, if P then Q and we, these people are in our lives every day. These are our husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. And we experience them externally. And what we see, you know, is the asshole or the person who mm -hmm. is aloof or the person who is condescending or the person who is mean or the person who is, you know, not something or is something. And all of this is going on, you know, in somebody's experience of, of their own humanity. And I don't know how we can try to remind ourselves every time we come across someone in their moment of coping or in their moment of surviving or in their moment of using whatever it is that they use to get through their day or to get through their trauma that they're still trying to live through, how can we remind ourselves of that happening in another person? So that will have it affect us less because we won't internalize it so personally yeah. as we do. 
But quite often we can't do that. You know why? Because we're busy trying to navigate our own crap. <laughs> you know, right. like we're busy. Now your coping mechanism has now triggered my coping mechanism. And yeah. now I have two coping mechanisms and the person behind is just two fears fighting each other, two anxieties fighting each other. And as we're talking about it, it's obvious, you know, that we've both been through something that allows us this introspection. But at what price? You know, like when you think about what it costs you to, to learn this, what are some of the things I know in, in, in one episode, like you beat, I'm sorry, in one chapter, you beat the crap out of a little boy that chose the wrong day to say something to you on the bus or in class. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, like it, it, what did it cost you to learn what you've learned? Oh, that's a great, I, there's so much to unpack there. By the way, I, I, and just to mention, to give the full story, I was also a little kid on the bus when that happened. I'm picturing like me, it's like going, finding this bus and be like, oh, this kid yelling at me. No. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, yeah. I mean, that was in junior high school and that was before, that was before I knew much of the, uh, much of anything. So, but it's, I, I love what you said. It's so it's, it, it is, it's, it's, it could be incredibly challenging when we see other people going through uh, coping mechanisms when they're triggered and we see the way that they uh, fall into victimhood or when they fall into abusing others around them and getting upset and lashing out. It, you, what you said reminded me of actually of, um, I, 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 I don't know the exact quote is just coming to me now, but it, it, when, when Jesus was on the cross and he said to God, for, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. Mm. I mean, talk about the ultimate example of seeing the coping mechanisms of humanities. They kill him. Yeah. And wow. he's there dying and saying, they don't, don't they don't know. know. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Please have mercy on them. So that, that's like the ultimate example to hold oneself to, to look to and be like, oh, wow. But yeah, and it, you, you reminded me of how um, actually my teachers will describe how if you watch someone and they get triggered and they fall into that pattern, you can see on their face how young they were when it started. You'll see them and they're a five-year-old. And it's like, oh, what happened when they were five? Because that's what started that pattern. It, it can get wild. But, so, I believe, but I believe you can't see that when you have been reverted to your five-year-old or your seven-year-old, then you lose the ability to see that. Because oh, yeah, for sure. At that moment, then, and, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe what blinds us is that we are trapped by our own pain and our own trauma. And this, that this allows us from seeing that in someone else because we're trying to survive that moment. If you're saying that something just popped into my head about like your recognition of that now and your awareness of that. And I wondered if there was a time where you were in a relationship with a partner and you were trapped in that space where, you know, their trauma triggered your trauma or your trauma triggered your trauma. Because sometimes I feel like you have an out-of-body experience where you see that happening, but you can't really do anything about it. And it especially depending on where you are with your own self-development and your own self-awareness and introspection. But it's like you're watching a movie and a lot of times that breeds into toxic relationships. It breeds into relationship where 
you know, these two people love each other and they want to be together. But when each person triggers the other person, it's like madness. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were in that situation? Now looking back where you could see, you know, that you were being triggered or you were triggering the other person? Well, oh, absolutely. Because that was probably all my human relationships up until my mid twenties. And even after then, it wasn't like a switch. It was just my relationships got more conscious as I worked on myself from there to the point uh, till today when actually even in my marriage, my wife and I are very aware and upfront of the fact that we're still working on our original wounding. Um, So it's kind of a gradual process of working on that. So, but yeah, in, in my early twenties, and, and before that, well, before that, I wasn't even aware. But in my early 20s, yeah, I absolutely was aware. Um, and it showed up as either me um, be, uh, um, turning to isolation as a solution or the belief system of, well, this is as good as it gets. Like if I had a business partnership with someone who was just like, I'm like, oh, really, dude? It was just like, well, I mean, I'm just doing the best I can. You know, that's if, if, if I was going to reflect on it all, that's what I would tell myself. It's like, well, you know, I'll just keep, you know, I don't know. I'll just keep working myself. We'll see where this goes and I'll just do the best I can. And I, I think that's how a lot of people deal with it. It's just like, well, that's I mean, when my wife and I observe other people in relationships today, that's a frequently common that comes up. They're just like, but that's that's a relationship. That's what it's like. My wife and I are just like. No. no, it doesn't have to be that bad. But I so um, but yeah, there I, I I think most people are able to see, and I certainly was able to see it. It's just like something's wrong, but it's it, if you don't know how to get out, oftentimes what I think people turn to, what I turn to is just like, well, that hey, that that's life, right? Yeah, they just think, you know. And a lot of times, too, people are comparing. Like, it's not as bad as my parents. Or it's not as yeah. bad as it could be. Or, yeah, yeah, we're bad, but we're not as bad as, you know, over there. And, yeah. which and could be true. Not, you never know. It could be true. Yeah. But, but even in that, there's a lot of settling and a lot of compromising that sometimes goes with that. And one of the things I often ask my clients, you know, when they're trying to decide whether or not they're just not a good compromiser, you know, we, we have the conversation about, differentiating between betraying yourself and compromising. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really good. Because a lot of times I think we want to be mature. We want to be the person in a relationship that has the ability to compromise. But it's a thin line between compromising and betraying yourself. And when some of the messaging from childhood hasn't been um, a good example of what that right that you have you know, to not have to betray yourself in order to have a seat at the table of someone else. You know, that's, it becomes an important distinction for people to make. Do you find that when you and your wife like work with couples that you, you see that where it's, is, is it compromise or is it betraying yourself or is it not giving yourself the thing that you quite frankly deserve or you're entitled to in terms of peace of mind, centeredness, groundedness, and, you know, not having to constantly give that up just to coexist in a relationship, partnership, or marriage with someone. Oh, all the time. And my, um, 
it's more my wife because she does, she does a lot of work with other people. I'm kind of, I just, I just wrote my book and I'm still coming out of my cave here. So, um, but yeah, what, what she'll observe a lot um, when she works with clients, she works uh, a lot with uh, women who are dating and it's, she's a very empathic person, like super, super empath, like needle on that end of the scale as far as can go. So she's really good at working with empaths and all the time she'll, she'll see. And she's, she used to go through it is where they'll lose themselves uh, and, and they'll become that chameleon in an effort to like win over that person. And I think um, the other side of that, spectrum would be the very, I think it typically shows up in, in, in men is, is the boring guy going back to what we were talking about earlier, talk about betraying yourself because you you're stuffing so much of yourself down in an effort to be, I don't know, just, just not have any kind of edge or identity that could possibly turn someone off that red flag. You don't want to yeah. raise a red flag for the other person. Yeah. You end up raising no flags. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, so yeah, I, 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 we see that all the time. And by the way, I, I remembered actually when you asked earlier, you had asked about, um, you know, what one must basically sacrifice or give up in order to like progress beyond that point or, or your question about sacrifice. I mean, the, it, I just remember that because the answer is um, you have to sacrifice everything. Um, with the spiritual studies I'm, I'm into now, they, they, they just call it death. Um, you have to go through a spiritual death after a spiritual death if you want to progress and change and, and grow and transform. Um, oh, I totally forget who it is, but there, I think there's a Buddhist deity. I think it's Buddhist. I could be totally wrong. But the idea is that when this deity is depicted as like a, a statue or something like that, or in a painting or a drawing, it's depicted standing over like a hundred dead bodies. And the bodies is of the old versions of the deity. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So the idea is like, if, if you want to go past and get beyond this idea of just like, oh, I keep dating the same person. I keep running into this. I keep having to like give myself up and I keep running into this. You have to die. Um, and, 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 and completely and utterly let go of the old you, which can frequently involve letting go of a lot of external stuff that you're clinging to, friendships, uh, you know, where you live, a career, all kinds of stuff. A, a version of yourself that you have invested quite a lot in becoming. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah exactly. <laughs> you know? Because like you said, at, at a time it was useful. It, it, all your coping mechanisms were useful at some point. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the low points that you have to kind of reconcile with and what was the turning point for wanting to try anything else because what you were doing was not working. You're listening to Let's Talk About It. I'm Denise. I'm talking to Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. And I know we haven't gotten to the meditative part because that's going to be in part two of our conversation. But don't go away. We'll be right back after these. Welcome back to Let's Talk About It. My guest today is Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. And we are talking about Nate's life and this wonderful journey 
he went on and discovered the standing meditation along the way. We'll talk about that more in depth in part two of this uh, series. This is the first part. We'll have a second part that will focus extensively on that meditative practice, as well as the spiritual um, awareness that you had to kind of invoke, evoke, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to have that experience. So I, I guess before the break, I wanted to find out a little bit more about you know, just some of the things you had to go through and some of the things you lost before coming to this kind of like impasse of like something different has to be a foot. Um, so where did I leave off? I, I had been losing quite a lot because um, at this point in my life, I was, I was definitely in debt um, and I was living on my own and and th and I was I was becoming very jaded. So at this point, I I was losing a lot of my assumptions about how a person can change themselves. Because up until this point, I was convinced that it came down to changing your conscious thoughts, setting goals, and working hard. And I just assumed that that was the way to go, and that it would work. So I started even losing that assumption. Um, which was necessary to grow, but it was also incredibly painful um, because I didn't know what was I going to replace it with. Um, and I definitely went down a path of like picking up all the books on like the law of attraction I could get, which just, it really confused me even more because it was, I was inched my way towards a more spiritual walk, but at the same time I was reading stuff like, um, you know, just a, a feel as though you're already having it and you're sure you're going to receive it and then make sure not to do any work. Because if you work, that's a form of, I don't know what their logic was. It was like, that's a form of doubt. And it's a form of like self-sabotage self of like magically attracting it. I was like, oh my God, what is this stuff? So I was getting really, I was really getting very jaded. Um, so at this point, I, it was, it was at my lowest point And I got to a point where when I was drinking every morning, I was just like, it's all luck and hard work. So I can't do much about luck, but I can work hard. And if I'm drinking every morning, at least I can feel a pleasant buzz while I work hard. Um, so this is where I, I basically, I just got, I got very fortunate. Um, and as part of what inspired me to write the book, um, I had a teacher at the time who I was learning marketing from. I, I was just learning. I was like writing. I was learning writing. I was learning about advertising. I was learning about self-publishing and all this stuff. He was also into a spiritual tradition called Taoism. Um, and he started to talk about it more and more because uh, he realized, well, I guess, you know, uh, I have some interest from my students who would, who would kind of, I mean, they're also starting their own businesses. So they also want to work on themselves. Taoism was, this is, you know, what he said is like Taoism worked for me. So he started teaching it. Um, and it was interesting because it really appealed to my ego because he would talk about these legendary, you know, masters on the spiritual walk who would like meditate in caves or on the top of mountains and would become enlightened and release super powerful, respected spiritual beings. And I was just like, yeah, I want some of that. I want to be um, that. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, like I was very fortunate in that he, I was hearing stuff that appealed to my ego because at least that got me interested. Um, and it got and it, and it kind of rekindled that desire in me to do something because I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's, I was, heck, I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. I was surrounded by weird spiritual stuff, but just nothing like grabbed me. So this grabbed me. So he started teaching a very simple foundational meditations, but um, they were presented to me in a, an exciting way, um, in a way that kind of inspired me to practice them. So I, I started practicing and I didn't realize this at the time. But what, what started going on as I practiced was I was stepping off of this hamster wheel of just trying to work with my mind and my thoughts, because I mean, I was a depressed guy and, and all my energy was stuck in my head. And here I was just worrying it even faster by trying to change my thoughts. So by engaging in these more like energetic practices from these old spiritual traditions, I was stepping off that hamster wheel entirely. And I was finally giving myself some stillness and I was working with the energy of my body instead. And it was really the first time in my life that I was deliberately doing so in a deep way. I think I had touched it before um, when I was really into working out. Um, and I think all of us sort of unconsciously gravitate toward it if we um, like go for a walk in nature and enjoy that sort of thing or kind of experience a state of awe when it's like a really beautiful sunset or a nighttime sky, I think, or, or there's a cool weather pattern going on outside. We all sort of experience this sort of like brief or, or sometimes not so brief connections with our environment where we're just put into this place of stillness. that can be very healing, but then just as unconsciously we leave that, that behind. So I, I would go, I, I touched the sort of thing, but when I started the meditative practices that he taught, it was my first time making it a daily part of my life. Um, and that's how kind of the, the ship of my inner world started to turn around because even though I wasn't trying to necessarily um, think differently, my thoughts started to change. Uh, I, that, that, you know, that, that like, oh, you're a loser da, da, that knob is like someone turned down the volume knob on that. Uh, and I started to like physically feel better. Um, because for the first time in my life, um, I was consciously changing my energy and it would have the physical manifestation of just like feeling good in my body, which I'd never really felt before. I was, I was always just either very neutral or I felt uncomfortable. So that, I still had years of challenges ahead of me, but that's, that's how I started to like turn my life around inwardly. You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that is the disconnection that you felt for so long or that you experienced for so long in your life, in your childhood, in your experiences and having spiritual practice that reminded you, because a lot of times we have to be reminded we're a part of a collective consciousness. And, you know, somebody gave an example, like when you're walking in like a really nice park and you don't hear a bird chirping or something, it almost feels like, oh, something's missing. And then, you know, you hear the bird, it's like, okay, because there's a, a part of you that recognize the missing part of that collective consciousness. And, 
I, I, I want us to talk about that a little bit more in the second part of our series. We're going to dive into the spiritual techniques that you utilized, implemented, and executed that really helped you to uncover and access that part of you that seemed to have been a little disconnected from before. But before we go, I wanted to ask you in regards to the pursuit of your, your spiritual journey, uh, were you religious prior to that? Um, not at all. I mean, I grew up in a household where I guess like the umbrella religion uh, was Judaism, but it was, we, we weren't devout. You know, we would just go to services once for whatever holiday every few months. So, and I am like, I grew up on the, I grew up in Massachusetts and um, in, in, in the eighties and nineties. So because of that, I was not exposed to a lot of religion um, and it just wasn't a big part of my life. And I didn't really think about it too much. And I, if I did, I kind of regarded it as just something that um, it wasn't really part of my identity. So I never thought or considered religion much. I knew it wasn't for me. And I also just wasn't exposed to a lot of spirituality. And, and if I was, I just didn't see the value in it because I was a very, <laughs> I had a very superficial mindset. So I just, I didn't, it, it, there was, it, it wasn't appealing to me. Kind of the same way a, a really healthy, high self-esteem person would kind of bounce off of me and I'd bounce off of them. So did more like genuine tenets of spirituality as well. So I was, I was, I was kind of a square in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> now you talked a little bit about exploring the spirituality. And I know that a lot of times when people have these, you know, this kind of thirst for wanting something more spiritual. I mean, you know, you can go from Buddhism, you could go from, um, you know, like law of attraction, law of the universe, as you are navigating these, you know, like various kind of um, spiritual <laughs> segues, mm -hmm. what, what was it that frustrated you about not finding what you wanted? Because it sounds like you, you realized that you weren't getting what you wanted or getting what you needed. And, and you were just a little frustrated in that period and you still kept going, which eventually led you to where you found. But I guess I'm asking that question because that question, because a lot of times people really get stuck and frustrated when something doesn't, you know, click for them in whatever spiritual practice they come upon and try to implement or be one with that. Um, yeah. Well, for me, it was because back then, especially when I was first getting started, my, my frequency was tuned to, you know, what's in it for me. Um, so naturally I was going to get disappointed real fast, um, with anything I tried. Um, and I think when it comes to a lot of people who go through the same experience, um, some of my teachers would call that, it's like, um, spiritual tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly, I honestly think a lot of times it's actually, it's not the person it's because a lot of spirituality actually really has been taught and passed on in a very hollow and empty way. It's no one's like fault per se, but a lot of the more in-depth practical spiritual practices just aren't really known. Um, 
So I, I think it can lead a lot of people to be frustrated because they really are dealing with the frustrating situation. They're running into uh, so, uh, um, a shell of, of what's really out there. Um, also Eastern Western philosophy, because, you know, honestly, the Western world, they want microwave spirituality. They really yeah. do. They want something that they could go to a workshop over the weekend and they get a certificate for awakeness. Because I think yeah. a lot of other parts of the world, that is a bypass that they, that's the only thing they have, you know, when you don't live in a capitalistic society or when you're in a space or a part of the world that you don't know where something's going to come from. You have to really trust something bigger than yourself. And that relationship is, is evident very early, depending on the society that, you know, you're a member of. But I do find that it is a little challenging here because people want a more microwaved kind of version of it, or they want it to be marketed. Like, you know, you just, oh, I've never seen that on TV or I haven't heard about it. And, you know, so I think that plays a role in oh. not having exposure a lot of times. Yeah, it, it, they kind of mix together to form this soup of, uh, <laughs> it could be very disappointing and frustrating for Gumbo. sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we're definitely going to talk some more about the standing meditation, what that is, how you discovered it, how you started to use it, and the difference that it made in your life, why you wrote a book about it, and what you want someone to get from reading this book. My guest today has been Mr. Nate Rifkin, author of The Standing Meditation. Um, this is part one of a two-part series. Uh, we are going to continue with this conversation. But before we go, I always ask my guests, do you have a question for me? Um, yes. I mean, what, what sort of inspired you? I mean, it, you, asked, you asked if I had a question. I do it. It's not, probably not a fast one to answer. But you, your insights have been so cool. I'm, I'm, I'd be very curious as to what sort of got you on this path of like self-exploration so yeah sorry I handed you a big one but that's that's what I'm interested in so. Matt, what's your favorite color <laughs> <laughs> you know you mentioned your wife earlier about her being an empath and <laughs> I didn't know that I was an empath as a matter oh, yeah. of fact I didn't like the idea because everybody say they're empaths even narcissists so oh, of I course really, I would. Yeah. <laughs> I, really kind of, I really kind of strayed away from it for a while, but I had to reconcile with the fact that I do feel people's stuff inside. And a lot of times I was not able to differentiate if it is, is my stuff or is their stuff and their stuff became my stuff. And I made a lot of mistakes in life and had a lot of failures and a lot of hard lessons and a lot of a lot of loss and a lot of bad decisions. And at some point I realized that the answer was going to have to come from me and my desire and courage to examine myself at a level that was uncomfortable. And so when I'm having conversations with people, I think on, uh, in, on some side, it's curiosity and inquisitiveness, but I think I'm always um, motivated to kind of have those conversations, even if it's uncomfortable, because I, I really want to know. And sometimes the people I'm talking to, they don't see it. 
you know, mm. and sometimes they do. So I think that's what inspires me. I'm I'm obsessed with my own introspection because I feel like I've made enough mistakes in life. I feel like I should be able to learn from some of those. Yeah. And the ones that I haven't made yet, I'm going to make it from a different perspective to where, you know, if you're going to fall, you got to fall a certain way. I oh, yeah. Minimize the mistake. Yeah. Minimize the impact. Let's make it so, quick. Let's make yeah. it as painless as we can. Yeah. <laughs> cool. That's super cool. Yeah. But you, you, I mean, for you, it's it's very, I mean, you make it easy for me to ask those questions because there's so much of you that's in here and so much of me that's in here, so much of cool. so many other people that I know, but I don't know if they've connected the dots. And I even see some of the dots that, that's connected as I'm reading because, I mean, it all comes from there, like the root, the foundation, it all. And sometimes, quite frankly, we don't want to go back. We don't want yeah. to go back and feel the emotion. We don't want to go to process. We Can we just find a way to continue to adult without having to ever <laughs> recall any of that? And you can't. You just really can't because it shows up in everything. In the pre-screening, I remember you saying that, you know, you're kind of like, all right, come on, bring it. Let's let's see what's next. And you see certain things in, in your marriage or in the dynamics between you and your wife and you're like, Oh, that's where that's coming from. Yeah. That's what I ask myself. What is that? Why do I feel that way? Like, I want to know what that is, right? So I dig for that within myself and I dig for that in other people. And I do that in my life coaching practice and I, I really enjoy it. So good question. Very cool. You said that I want to be a white question. That was a good one. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. That was, that was really cool to hear. Well, we haven't heard the last of you. We're going to continue with part two. And I want you guys to watch this on our YouTube channel. Go to the Let's Talk About It podcast for additional information. The Let's Talk About It podcast.com. Or you can contact me on my website, which is imdenise.com. We're going to be recording the second part of this series very shortly. I'm excited about that and I can't wait. Thank you so much again for stopping by today. It was incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, because I need some standing meditation in my life. (laughs) As I'm reading your stuff, I'm like, I can't wait to get to the part where he tells me how he fixed it. (laughs) Cool. I hope you enjoy it. I will. I will. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About It. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to the podcast. Let's talk about it. Feel free to support our podcast by selecting the sponsorship link on this platform. Drop us a line or even be one of our guests. Visit us on the web at www.imdenise.com to learn more.